On a summer day in 1907, Francis Galton went to the fair. At the time, there was a, a popular game at English country fairs. A full-grown oxen would be put on display for a week. And for sixpence, anyone that wanted could submit a ticket with their guess as to how much beef from the oxen, how much the beef from the oxen would weigh after the poor beast was butchered. <laughs> this was to prevent anybody from knowing the number ahead of time. Whoever's guess was closest to the final weight would often win a prize, often some kind of uh, beef. <laughs> and so Francis Galton was many things. Uh, we'll, we'll touch on that a little bit later, but some of his most enduring and positive contributions to the world were in the realm of statistics. His motto, a biographer would later, later write, was, when in doubt, count everything. <laughs> and Galton was fascinated by how large data sets described reality. And so he was curious about this game, and he somehow convinced organizers of the Plymouth County Fair, once their contest with the ox was over, to hand over the 787 tickets that had been submitted, each with a name, address, and estimated weight. And he was curious what the numbers would show. Would many people all guess the same number with a few outliers? Would the crowd miss high or low with a cluster, maybe made up of butchers, right around the <laughs> accurate weight? Would folks whose addresses were in the country be more accurate than city folk? When the data was analyzed and plotted, 787 cards described an almost perfect bell curve. Most guesses were within 100, within 100 pounds, and then tails went out in either direction. The median guess and the single closest guess was 1,207 pounds. The average of the crowd's guests was 1,199 pounds. The final weight of the ox was 1,198. The most accurate guess was not an expert, not a butcher or a shepherd, but the crowd itself acting collectively. Now, Galton, being an upper-class English Victorian mathematician, promptly published his results of this experiment in the journal Nature under the sufficiently haughty title Vox Populi, the voice of the people. <coughs> the results of his analysis, he wrote, were more credible to the trustworthiness of a democratic judgment than might have been expected. <laughs> There's a lot of Galton's legacy that is not positive. But this particular experiment is a cornerstone of statistics to this day. This is what it looks like now. The differences between the mean and the median, the idea of a normal distribution, a bell curve, the idea of standard deviation, pretty much all of it comes from this experiment and others that later tried to repeat it. Undergirding all of it is this basic idea that the group is often more accurate, wiser, than any individual in it. Of course, it's a little ironic that Francis Galton's largest contribution to statistics is that groups are often smarter than experts. <laughs> he was a Victorian through and through and also wrote extensively about how isolated geniuses can change the world. 
And it's in his writings that the term, if not the practice, eugenics was coined. So he's a complicated figure. The good news is statistics, like lots of sciences, uh, is that we can, we can separate the data and the experiments from the difficult, not always positive people that did the original experiment. So in the interest of not basing my sermon this morning off a dead Victorian eugenicist, I thought we would try an experiment ourselves. An ox was a little expensive. <laughs> and may have eaten a number of auction baskets. So we are trying with the 21st century version of this experiment, a vase full of jelly beans. As you came into the church this morning, we asked you to guess the number of jelly beans in this container. That, and we uh, said the person that came the closest would get to take them as a Sunday afternoon snack. <laughs> we received 98 guesses. The lowest was nine. <laughs> the highest was 3,600. The, uh, the mean, the average, was 704. There are 793 jelly beans. And the median was one anonymous guess that guessed 798. Like the experiment with the ox, it turns out, we are collectively pretty good at reaching an approximate estimation of a number. Even though none of us, individually, I don't think, is an expert on jelly bean counting. Since we are collectively pretty good at this, we will have the jelly beans out for everybody to share at coffee hour. <laughs> We've been working this year with monthly themes, taking several weeks to speak to a single idea from different directions and with different voices. April's theme for us is emergence. And if you want to, to try and read a theme of emergence back into the Easter service we did last week, it's there. But this is the start of our theme-based sermons for the month. I wanted to start here because I find this idea of emergent properties fascinating. And at the, the core of what we do in religion, emergence in this sense means that a collective can have properties beyond what any individual has. So in a very simple example, the pixels on a digital projector can individually project exactly three colors, red, blue, and green. Yet when you put several thousand of them, maybe several million of them next to each other, they can produce a range of thousands, if not millions, of colors. Purple is an emergent property of a church projector. In this way, also, a group of fairgoers can become expert weight guessers even if none of them are butchers. A group of individual twigs can become unbreakable. And a church can become expert in jelly bean counting. <laughs> when you start looking for them, emergent properties are everywhere. Consciousness is a classic example of emergence. As far as science can describe, we are physical <laughs> bodies made up of millions of individual cells. Each of those cells 
lives, dies, reproduces in its own right. Within the brain, chemical and electrical signals travel from cell to cell, which communicate with the muscles in our arm, in our mouth, in our digestive system to pick up, eat, and digest a jelly bean. But the experience of deciding to enjoy and actually eating candy is something else that we can't measure or see very well. The experience of saying jelly beans are my favorite candy or why didn't Oscar use chocolate as another seasonably appropriate sermon <laughs> illustration, that is something that does not appear in a biology textbook. Consciousness is an emergent property. And if we want to go further, life is an emergent property, right? Because those cells that together make up somehow the experience of consciousness, they're all made up of pretty simple stuff. Protons, electrons, atoms, molecules, protein chains, all things we can see under a microscope. For the most part, stuff that appears in nature in forms that are decidedly not alive. But somehow chemical reactions that we can see in nature or in a test tube become life in a cell, which in turn gives rise to a consciousness that can experience a jelly bean. We are in a very real way, as Julian Huxley wrote, the universe becoming aware of itself. Religion is an emergent property of groups of people. What slide is this? Yes. <laughs> Religion is a collective experience. Just like a single cell of my tongue cannot have the full experience of tasting candy, I can, any of us can, have an individual spiritual experience or have a sense of wonder at a sunset, or marvel at our place in cycles of birth and death, but without the context of a community and tradition, those individual experiences are in some way incomplete. It's when we're together, when we're speaking or singing as one collection of many voices, that the true meaning of those experiences can start to be glimpsed. Resilience is a religious virtue. And like the bundle of sticks in Chelsea's story earlier, we are stronger when we are bound together. The Latin that religion comes from comes from the word to bind together. That is the core of what religion is. We are stronger more resilient, more spiritual beings when we are together. That, to me, is the core insight of religious humanism, the humanism that lives within our tradition. Our faith teaches us that we are individuals who are worthwhile, who have worth and dignity, who are beautiful and powerful. That's all true, and the human experience collectively is an emergent property of community. My individual experience is deepened by experiencing it together with you. This is worth some explanation. Uh, Cedric Johnson uses this equation when he talks about marriage, but it works well in this context as well. One plus one equals three. 
This is the equation of a good marriage, he says, and an equation of a good community. Each person retains their individuality, but together they form something more than the sum of their individual parts. So, one plus one plus x equals three. What is the missing variable? What is the thing present in our collective experience that makes this a community of power and collective support rather than 150 individuals in a room together for an hour on Sunday morning? That's the question of religion, the question of faith. Solve for x. You can take up the projector now for a minute. Because I want to speak for a minute this morning as we move towards a conclusion about what it means to exercise power collectively. Fifty years ago this week, Martin Luther King was shot and killed at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis, Tennessee. There's a lot that's been written this week and probably preached today about Dr. King's life, legacy, ministry. It's right that we do that, that we remember him King the individual in all his glories, his faults, his successes. But to me, one of the most important parts of this week is, is why Martin Luther King was in Memphis. King was in Memphis to support a strike of sanitation workers. Collective action was and is a hallmark of both the civil rights movement and workers' rights. And through his entire career, Outstanding as he was as an individual, Martin Luther King worked with and spoke for movements, collective movements. Community organizers are trained in this to this day. There's a, a Gamaliel certificate right behind my desk. And as, it is as serious as the seminary diploma next to it. The fundamental lesson of community organizing is this. Companies and governments can write off any number of individuals shouting about what they want changed. They can. But a group of people organized around a single message and a single set of actions, that needs, that demands a response. The group's power is an emergent property. Martin Luther King went to Memphis to help the sanitation workers. So what must it have been like to organize in Memphis to reach that level of organizational power and cachet that you could draw a national name like Martin Luther King and now be remembered as the place he died? The tragedy of 1968 is broad. And also, it's important to say on this day that collective action did not end in 1968. Fifty years later, the inheritors of King and the sanitation workers of Memphis are teachers in Oklahoma, in Kentucky, in West Virginia. They are students in Parkland, Florida, and Lincoln, Nebraska. 
They are organizers and neighborhoods from Sacramento to Baltimore saying Black Lives Matter. Though those movements are all made up of individuals, but they speak together with voices that echo through halls of power. Here's the thing. Our, our faith teaches us that individually we're worthwhile. We are beautiful. We are powerful. These things are all true. But something happens when we act collectively. Something emerges. Like Galton's fairgoers, we are smarter. Like a bundle of sticks, we are stronger. And like King and the movement he was a part of, we can command attention. What holds us back from that? Amen. If you would, rise in body or in spirit and join in singing number hymn 318 in the gray hymnal, We Would Be One. <laughs> 